This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Ellis Pod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Love strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot Hello and welcome to the Love Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. There's not much for me to say at the start of this episode, other than this is instalment three of the My Eleven series. We've had Vic Morgan on, we've had Ben Wills on, and for this episode, I'm joined by Gavin Brown. I'm really enjoying this series, and I say it several times during the episode, and I don't care because it's great listening to fellow town fans talking about players who I know, who I have memories of, but they give their memories and it's so much different sometimes and it's almost an education from time to time as well and for those of you who didn't experience the times that Gavin talks about within this episode then it's so interesting and also makes you feel a little envious as well anyway I really hope you enjoy it it was great to listen to Gavin so it's time to sound the hooter for the Low Strangers podcast enjoy <laughs> Hello, Rich. Thanks for having me. I'm very honoured to have been asked. That's quite okay. If you can introduce yourself, please. I'm Gavin Brown. I'm originally from Wiltshire. I'm from Oldbourne. I grew up in just outside Swindon. So I've been a Swindon fan all my life. But um, I haven't lived in Wiltshire for over 20 years now. So I've lived in London for most of my adult life. And what do you do for a living? 
I work for the Metro newspaper. Um, I'm the assistant sports editor. Yeah, I mean, my, most, I'm sure most of the listeners know Metro is the free one that you can pick up on the tube and the train and the bus. And I believe it's Britain's best read newspaper. That's the, the press press release bit I'm meant to read out. So yeah, it's good. I mean, I've been there quite a long time. I'm mainly based in the office. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's sports, so it's a, it's, a, it's a great job to have. It's a job I enjoy. But I'm not really the kind of journalist that gets out and interviews a great deal of people or gets to games. I'm more kind of words and pictures on pages. Um, supposedly clever headlines, daft puns, that kind of thing, you know. I used to work more for websites as well, but it's predominantly newspaper nowadays. I edit our weekly football pullout on a Friday, it kind of previews all the big games of the weekend. So I do sort of commission kind of a lot of interviews for that, but don't always actually do them myself necessarily. I just get to point and order other people to do them. You hear and read a lot of stuff these days about how print journalism or journalism full stop is really hard to get into. Do you think that is the case? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably is. I, I think if you're a young journalist now, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, for example, your colleague Ben, who comes on the show, guys like that have to work really hard and really get out there and kind of, you know, get their name and recognised and, and show willingness and loads of work. Whereas when I started sort of 20 years ago, you had to do that to an extent, but it, there were more opportunities, I would say. And there were there were lots and lots of websites. I mean, now, nowadays, I guess, you know, there's still a lot of blogs and kind of social media content, but there were a lot more play, places probably willing to pay you money to do stuff rather than just asking you to submit something and expecting you to uh, you know survive on fresh air i think i think i was quite lucky in a sense yeah probably came in at the right time i think there's always a, a place for quality journalism quality content you know there's there's, a, there's always a place for daft content as well you know if you go on twitter we see lots of fun throwaway stuff but i think people are still interested in in reading long-form journalism but also you know the kind of shorter throwaway stuff we produce in the metro you know interesting stories and interesting people reading about them you know and the same you know we like with podcasts and audio and things like that i mean po- podcasts as you obviously know, a burgeoning form of the media. Yeah, I think people are just always going to be interested. And I think in some form that will always be there. The problem a lot of sectors of the industry have is monetizing it. You know, that's that's the kind of age-old issue. Metro has a pretty successful model of advertising, but bringing in the revenue. But in return, you know, what we produce is, you know, not the most investigative or kind of exhaustive coverage because our budgets are, are pretty limited in that respect. But yeah, I, I, I think the industry, you know, in some form... Is, is always going to be there, you know? Well, it's only one way you can get fit is to run, and uh, most days we go out here and we run to start with, and then, uh, then we play with the ball. As much as I like to listen to you talk about journalism, I think it's about time we start talking about Swindon Town Football Club, and we'll start really easy with some memories, if that's okay with you, and we'll begin with your first Swindon Town game. My first game, I'm... I can tell you this with some accuracy, not because I have a great memory, but because I did double-check the other day, I did a bit of research, was December the 27th, 1980, which is an incredibly long time ago and makes me feel incredibly old. I was five years old, and we beat Plymouth Argyle 3-0 at the county ground. I suppose you can say you were quite lucky, because Swindon weren't very good at that moment in history. I think, I think they really struggled that season. Yeah, yeah. I can't pretend to remember a huge amount about the game. I seem to remember, um, I, it was, I sat in the north stand with my dad. We were sat quite near the back. And I can, I know it's a cliche, but I can remember kind of the floodlights and the green pitch, which always made me assume it was an evening game. But actually, you know, having researched it, it was a Saturday. But I guess it was late December, so it probably was dark. That, that's about all I remember of the game. But I've got a programme. I've still got the programme. I dug it out the other day, and it says on the front, Gavin's first game, Swindon won 3-0. So I'm not going to argue with my dad for... Um, if that's what he wrote on the front. Yeah, that sounds pretty conclusive to me. So what else do you remember from those early formative years of following the club? 
Um, well, so after that, I, I couldn't tell you how often I went between sort of the ages of five and ten, but we sort of went periodically. Always with my dad, I think. I was mascot in 1983 at home. Well, obviously at home against Blackpool. My dad's old school friends, a guy called Steve Hetsky, was the captain of Blackpool, bizarrely. And I think in those days that was that was how you could that was how they could arrange it, sort of thing. But yeah, it was a terrible nil-nil draw. There's only about 2,000 people there, I think. Shows how bad. I think it was the season after they'd been relegated. Mm. We got relegated. Um, and I do remember that. I remember going in the dressing room. I remember players with Vaseline on their eyebrows, you know, and all that kind of thing, sitting in the manager's office for 10 or 15 minutes before the game sitting on, I think, Andy Rowland's knee in the dressing room. And then uh, most famously, and I, I say famously because genuinely all my family remember this, uh, I fell over coming off the pitch. <laughs> I ran off. I was running off the pitch. You know, these football pitches have a bit of a drop, don't they, between the turf and the running track. And I think I heard a cheer from the step from the north stand or saw my mum and dad or something. So I looked up to wave and basically fell over and... Yeah, there was a big laugh and a big cheer, and I grazed my knees. Well, it finished nil-nil, and my dad always said that was the biggest cheer of the day. So I'd say that's the only other game I can particularly remember until when it really, really started for me was the 85-86 season when we won the fourth division. But more specifically, they won they won a League Cup tie against Sunderland, I think was away. I still can remember this. It was real like cup fever. Everybody was really in, into the fact that they were into, I think, the third round, and they drew Sheffield Wednesday in the next, next round. Um, and we got tickets, and it was a sellout. Swindon won. One nil, and after that we were pretty much. Well, it certainly feels like, to my memory, we were pretty much ever present at home games that season. Me and my dad. I'd say that was the the real sort of formative moment. You're part of a generation of Swindon Town fans that are really lucky because you guys witnessed loads of great moments. I'm really lucky, aren't I? I'm, mm. I'm of that sort of generation that was old enough and also fortunate enough to go to those big games. I mean, I've got mates who are the same age as me who maybe did, didn't go to games till they were kind of in their teens because, you know, maybe their parents weren't as interested in, in football or whatever. So, so they didn't really have any way of getting there. Whereas I was really, really lucky that my, my dad wanted to go and my granddad was a season ticket holder. So it was just something we did. So, yeah, I would say certainly that cup tie in 85, it would have been. And then, yeah, the play, obviously the playoff run in 89-90 went to the Blackburn semi-final away with my oh, dad, yes. which was, um, I was watching a bit of a clip of that today, and mm. it was as good as I remembered. That was pretty amazing. We used to go to quite a lot a lot of away games the, the, around that period, me and my dad, and we never saw Swindon win. I don't know if that was the first time, but it, it certainly wasn't far off the first time. Then... Yeah, obviously Wembley in, in 1990. I know I know the shine was taken off it a week later, but it was still a, a great, great, great day and a great feeling afterwards. 93, I was old enough to be to be going on my own by then, and me and a friend went on the coach up to Tranmere for the second leg of the semi-final, which was just amazing, something I'll never forget. The scenes at the end, the Tranmere fans all came on the pitch, and we, we basically thought that they, they were coming to beat us up. And they were <laughs> running across the pitch, and they kind of got to the edge of the area, and they all sl- slowed down, and they, they basically all wanted to swap scarves and hats and things. So I've still got an old like Tranmere ski hat, which I, I swapped with this lad. He wanted he wanted my shirt, and I felt really bad saying, well, I need that for Wembley, mate. I'm going to need that. So <laughs> we, we, we settled for hats. So so, yeah, that was an amazing day. And, yeah, and then obviously Wembley itself, which for someone with a terrible memory, I, I do have really vivid memories of all the goals, to be honest. I can remember the game really well, as well as the occasion. And, yeah, I mean, just brilliant times, yeah. That final in 1993 is absolutely insane. From the ecstasy of going 3-0 up to the horror of the 3-3. What was it like in the stands when... Leicester equalised at 3-3. Typical of me to dwell on the negative, but oh, it must have been crazy. I don't even remember like sort of anguish as such as just. I think we were in total shock. Mm. 
Well, I remember when the third goal went in, I ended up about five rows in front of where I started. And, you know, you, you was kind of the party started. We've done it. And yeah. they scored. And do, do you remember, obviously, you remember the Sheffield United game three or four years ago. Yeah, sure. It was a bit like that. Yeah. You know, they scored and you thought, oh, well, they've got one back. And then they scored again and you, oh, yeah, oh no, it doesn't matter. Oh, no, they've got, they've got three now, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I think it was just shock. I think, I think that was it. So what motivates you to remain a Swindon Town fan after two decades of so close yet nowhere near? I think, you know, it's a good question, isn't it? I, I think it's like one of those questions when people say, why do you support Swindon? I'd be like, well, why, why, why wouldn't I? You sure. know, I don't see any reason to stop. I mean, I don't pretend that I, I don't pretend that I go very often. I'll be honest with you. Mm. I only probably go four or five times a season and, and I pretty much exclusively go to away games. So I guess it's, it's family and friends, you know, it's catching up with people because I don't live in Wiltshire. My family, my mum and dad moved down to Bournemouth about 20 years ago. So I don't have a lot of family to go and visit, mm. which means I rarely go to the county ground. So it's just meeting up with mates. I mean, I, I don't have kids myself, but a lot of my friends do. And my cousin's a good friend of mine. He's got a couple of kids and it's just like, you know, four or five, six times a season. And obviously when when we're doing well it's a bit more often because we're glory hunters <laughs> it's, a, it's an excuse to get together spend some time with, with your friends and and bond over the thing that probably the thing that keeps you friends you know and made you friends and yeah just you know you, you, I've, I've, never, I've never been to see, see Swindon play football and think and think it was a bad day out you know it might be a bad game but it's never a bad day out and it's yeah it's just part of me you know and I'd always want it to be I've asked the next question to both Vic and Ben so I'll ask you the same it's in relation to rivalries who do you consider Swindon's biggest rival Oxford Reading, Bristol City, Bristol Rovers, Ginningham, or someone else? Uh, to be honest, Rich, I know you have to be an exhaustive journalist and, and just double check, but I can't believe you're even asking that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Oxford. Or, uh, you know, it just always has been, hasn't it? I'm not, I'm not sure when I understood that it was Oxford, because when I first started going, they were in the first division and they won the Milk Cup. And I even knew someone who had, a, had an Oxford shirt who was a Swindon fan. And I think it was, you know, that kind of, oh, they're good as well. So he we bought a shirt, which when we were a little bit older and... Um, <laughs> We both realised how bad that was. He, he he actually burnt it in his back garden. Yeah, it was my friend Bobby Archer. If he if he listens to this, I, I still name and shame him. It was just it was always Oxford, isn't it? And still is. We didn't play him for years, and then when we, when we started playing him again, I was unfortunate enough to go to the Kassam for the um the Canio game, and I was there. What did we played in midweek about four years ago. Yeah, I think. Johnson's I paint remember. last minute. Yeah, part, yeah, I went, I went, yeah, I went to that as well. Yeah. And, and yeah, nothing nothing hurts more, does it? And and nothing's more enjoyable when you win. I think the best game I ever. I went to an away game in the early 90s and we won and that was great. I always remember the one, Joe Beaton's first game back at the county ground when Mark Seagraves basically kicked, kicked him around the ground for about 90 minutes was just, I don't know. I was going to say fantastic, but actually in a way it was horrible, you know. It was one of those weird, kind of visceral, weird experiences, but... I don't know, like the baying mob, you know? You you wouldn't get that against anybody else, and I wouldn't have felt like that against anybody else. I remember, actually, I felt a bit sorry for him, Mm. while at the same time, you know, stood there hurling abuse. Mm. But, uh, you know, yeah, so Oxford, obviously, Reading, yeah, I don't like Reading, Bristol City, Bristol Rovers, I don't really, you know, I'm not too fussed, to be honest, I don't mind. And then there's, there's sort of bogey teams that you pick up along the way, isn't there, as well? Whipping in the crosses from the left and the right hand side. Here's McLaughlin. McLaughlin to try a shot. It's off Gary Bennett, and that is the opening goal. Alan McLaughlin. Okay, then. So Vic and Ben went for their all-time Swindon Town 11s. And although your 11 and substitutes and people on the bench are all fantastic players, most of them bona fide legends... You haven't gone quite for your all-time eleven. So, what is the name of this squad? 
Um, it's it's not a, it's not a catchy title. It's probably more clunky, but I, I'd say it's my Colt Maverick eleven. I, I, I was probably I was probably conscious of not just picking the same eleven players that you may have heard before. And and like I say, when, when you've watched them in the period I did it, it'd, it'd be very easy to, to to reel off kind of you know the players from about eighty nine to ninety three. So I've tried to have a mix of some of those. Some, there's some that are unavoidable. You just had to pick, but also just a few favourites that meant a lot to me growing up, or players that had a bit of style or a bit of swagger, that kind of thing. So out of curiosity what makes you a cult player and what makes you a maverick um it's it's, it's either the way you do something or or maybe i'd say for, for a maverick it's the way they go about their business day in day out or week in week out maybe the way they play maybe the, the way they look mm. certainly a lot of footballers i like growing up I, I cared more what they looked like than what they did which is probably why i turned out to be a pretty bad footballer because i was more about you know socks down shirt hanging out and that kind of thing and i'd say in terms of cults status it might be more maybe not what they did every week but maybe what you know what defined them if they did one thing in a certain game or something like that you know Mm. so quite wonderfully you've been thorough and you've come prepared not just with an 11 you've also provided me my subs bench a manager a formation and a few players that didn't quite make the first team squad and those players are Lawrence Vigory, Nesta Lorenzo, Dave Bamber and Sam Parkin and we'll start with Lawrence Vigory. Yeah, Lawrence Vigory. I mean, he's he's not everybody's favourite player, is he? Particularly at the moment, but he is undeniably a maverick. I think, isn't he? You know, kind of on field, the, the sort of the, the cut of his jib. You know, in possession. I mean, I, you know, we like to play with a keeper who likes the ball at his feet, and, and we've had that on and off for a few years. But I'm pretty sure Lawrence would have done that, whoever the manager was. You know, I think I think he's one of those goalkeepers that quite fancies playing on the right wing and makes regular sojourns off to kind of play for Chile, doesn't he? Which What's more maverick than that when you're in League Two? Uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think the guy's a maverick, to be fair. But he defines it for me, yeah. He's infuriating, but but he's never dull. So next up, an Argentina international who came to England to trial for Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest, but ended up signing for Swindon from Bari. It's Nesta Lorenzo. He was pretty good, I think, yeah. I mean, same as you. I mean, I was, I guess I was 14, 15 when we signed him, and... I remembered the World Cup, obviously. I remembered the World Cup final, and he was one of the ones who surrounded the referee when mm-hmm. they had somebody sent off. And yeah, then the next thing you, you hear, you've signed somebody from, you know, who played in the World Cup final, and he's at Swindon. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I, I think, to be honest, I'm not sure he really kind of lived up to that potential, and he well, he wasn't there a, a huge, huge long time. But again, he, he was a bit of a maverick. I, I remember seeing him. He was sent off at Norwich in an FA Cup game I went to with my dad. I think it was a professional foul, but it was, you kind of felt rather than one of those last man tackles, you know, desperate kind of, I'll take one. For the team it was more a kind of do I have to run back there no I'm not doing that and he just tripped I think it was Robert Fleck and he just tripped him up and I'm sure I'm sure it wasn't like this but in my mind's eye he kind of just tripped him up and walked off the pitch before he'd even seen the red card you know it was an impressive sight and yeah again he was um, yeah, a bit of a maverick bit of a bit of a cult favourite yeah and that leads us to Dave Bamber yeah Dave, Dave Bamber I mean he was there I think probably around 86 to 88 so I was pretty young I, I couldn't give you a specific memory particularly of what he did but he was um, he was tall very tall and thin great mullet shirt untucked and I think he was kind of nominally a centre forward but Lou Macari and his wisdom used to stick him on the left wing up against, up against a little fullback and he just kind of you know get these guys muscled out of the way and then he had quite a good habit he was very good very good with the ball at his feet you know very good close control and very good at winning penalties and yeah he just had that sort of um i don't know i might call it bin man aesthetic you know he just looked like a little bit of a, a little bit of bob dylan playing for swindon i don't know he just yeah something a bit different about dave bamber that i quite liked next up friend of the pod super sammy parkin 
Yeah, it's very harsh putting Sam on the bench, on, in the stands, to be honest. He probably probably should be should be at least on the bench. And yeah, I mean, I, I loved your chat with, with Sam a few months ago, and I think he spoke really eloquently about when you did as well about the period when he arrived, when things weren't particularly rosy, were they? Mm-hmm. What I liked about Sam was to look at him, he didn't necessarily suggest that, that he was going to change that significantly. You know, he was... He'd say himself, he wasn't the quickest, does he? He wasn't the. He, he didn't necessarily look the part. And I had a friend who was a Northampton fan who basically rolled his eyes when I said we'd signed him and said, "Oh, he's rubbish." And I and I reminded of him of him that every Saturday um, when, when Sam scored. And what I loved about him is he's he's kind of striker I like who just puts the ball in the net. You know, mm. he, he was he was like I said, he wasn't the quickest, he wasn't particularly skillful, but he just had that knack. Uh, yeah, and like, as he said in his conversation with you, he re- obviously really grew in confidence, trying trying things that he wouldn't necessarily have done earlier in his career. But yeah, he was just, I mean, he wasn't a maverick or, or a cult hero necessarily, but he was just a great player and seems like a lovely bloke. OK, let's move on to the subs bench in the first. Number 12, played for Swindon between 2009 and 2017. 187 appearances, four goals. It's Nathan Thompson. Absolute opposite of a maverick, Nathan, I think, probably, isn't he? But he was Ooh. definitely, I think, a cult figure. He's just, I, I love Nathan. I'm I need to tell Swindon fans why I loved him probably the same reason we all did he was just he was obviously one of a local lad wasn't he so he'd come through the system which you know they're sort of few and far between often and just wholehearted I love that I love the fact this, this is probably a, a bit flippant but I love the fact that he always looked absolutely knackered <laughs> like after five minutes do you know did you ever notice he looked like he'd sort of had 20 fags the morning of the game and, and he was obviously a very 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 fit but it was about his gait and the way he ran that, that suggested otherwise and I think that's what kind of first attracted him to me I have on my notes, Nathan Thompson, smiling shithouse. Uh, there you go. I'm, I'm glad you used the word shithouse. Yeah, he was a bit, wasn't he? There's a, a bit of dark arts about it. He kind of mastered that art, the sort of European art of falling on the ball in case he didn't get the free kick, that you're not having the ball either, you know, you just kind of grab it. And he just also had that brilliantly unlikely but really successful transformation into a sweeper under under Cooper. Mm. And he just was fantastic there, you know? And I just, I love that team. I love the absolute, I can't think of the right word, but just the, the complete refusal to do anything other than play three and a half yard passes out from West to... Nathan Thompson, even if he was surrounded by five players, you know, <laughs> and the kind of you know dying for your art in a way that was, wasn't it? You know, I think probably wish he'd gone to a bigger club than Portsmouth, maybe, or or up at another division. But you know, you couldn't begrudge him it, could you? And he scored at Wembley last week, didn't he? And I was I was delighted to see it. I cheered in the office, much to the confusion of everybody else. Number thirteen is a goalkeeper. Not a long spell at Swindon, nineteen eighty five to nineteen eighty six, playing fifty two times. Division four champion Kenny Allen. Kenny Allen, yeah, he so he was the goalkeeper of the, the the first great Swindon team that I watched. Like you said, a very very brief spell, but he was there for I think all of that title winning season in 1985-86. So I was 10, he was I think 38, but he might as well have been 80. He just looked so old. He he kind of had less muller and more sort of your kind of 70s mopper hair, big moustache, going grey. He just it didn't look like a footballer definitely well, I didn't like a goalkeeper let alone a, a footballer generally I, I, I couldn't tell you whether he was massively good to be honest I just remember that he was our goalkeeper and, and I loved him I love the fact that he came from Torquay and when his job was done and we bought Fraser Digby he went back to Torquay and became a postman God knows where, where Lou had seen him like a lot of kind of signings in that era under Lou McCartney he just he was the right person at the right time number 14 somehow didn't make the first 11 but it's your squad you choose how you see fit 1991 to 1996 259 appearances and 33 goals Ooh, Sean Taylor yeah sorry I, I don't know why he's on the bench 
well, when we get to the team, I'll try and explain why, why the other guy is yeah, Sean Taylor, isn't it? Just, you know, 10 goals a season. People in the World Cup last year used to go on about the size of Harry Maguire's forehead and, you know, how he used to thunder those headers in. And I was thinking, you know, no, 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 you haven't seen Sean Taylor, you know. Yeah, what, what, what a man. He was the perfect foil for Colin Calderwood. I think probably did run through brick walls, not just could, probably did. Also had like a gum shield, didn't he? And, yeah, the goal at Wembley when he just yeah. dived in there in, in amongst all the boots. <laughs> and as the old commentary said, he who hesitates pays the price. Number 15, played for Swindon during the low, dark days of the early 80s, all the way through the glory period under Lou Macari. 269 appearances, 30 goals, Charlie Henry. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Henry. He's another one of those weird Lou Macari players that I think he was a fullback when Macari arrived. Mm. I only know that from reading up on it since, but he'd been there a while. Lou kind of played him as an attacking midfielder, and he, I think he was top scorer in 85, 86. It was one of those weird teams that they, they finished 102 points and were all singing, all dancing, but they didn't really have a striker that scored loads of goals. He had Charlie Henry scoring, Peter Coyne scoring. And yeah, I, I just like the fact, I mean, he was a cult, cult figure, no, no question. I mean, he was everybody's kind of, you know, playground favourite. Lovely, OK. So, number 16, played for Swindon between 1987 and 1991, playing 190 times, scoring 29 goals. Perhaps forgotten under the glory of the Glenn Hoddle era, but a great player nonetheless, Steve Foley. Yeah, he, he was, you're right. That's, that's one of the reasons I've included him, because I think he was underrated. Yeah. And, and kind of a bit forgotten now, but he was he was a great favourite at the time. Stigger, he used to call him. I think he was a scouser from Sheffield, Sheffield United. And he was maybe an example of, of, you know, Swindon kind of buying slightly better players under a late era Macari and early era Ardiles, you know, mm. rather than these kind of, this kind of patchwork quilt of, you know, kind of journeymen and um, cast-offs. He was, a, he was a proper footballer, you know, he'd come from a big club or bigger club. But he was, he played on the left of like Ozzy Ardiles diamond with like Ross McLaren at the base, Alan McLaughlin at the tip, and you had Jones, Tom Jones and Steve Foley. So I think he's on the left, but he wasn't he wasn't a left winger, you know, he's kind of playing inside. And he scored a lot of goals, including fantastic goal, as I mentioned, in the, the, the Blackburn playoff game. A corner just came to him about twenty yards out and he just hit it. But he had a had a bit of bit of needle about him as well. He could really get stuck in. And he just yeah, he, he added the real steel to the midfield under uh, under Macari, but definitely as well under under Ozzy Ardiles through from sort of eighty nine to about ninety one. I think yeah, he was he's probably kind of forgotten in the wash a bit when we started buying a lot of you know very good ball playing midfielders mm. over the next couple of years like Hazard, M- Mickey Hazard, Martin Link coming back, obviously John Moncur, fantastic footballers, and you know Foley maybe gets forgotten a bit because of that, but but he was he was there like you said four or five years, yeah. played a lot of games and was was really really good player yeah. Okay, number 17, played for Swindon between 1993 and 1995, scoring 38 times in 87 appearances. There were also two relegations as well, kind of. It's Jan Agafiotov. Yeah, he was so good. I think he probably got relegated at Middlesbrough as well. Yeah. I think he loved his time in England, but yeah, I'm not sure it was hugely successful in that sense. But yeah, I just remember he was our marquee signing in the Premier League season. We were already excited. And then he was about to go out on loan, wasn't he? Yeah, and then he scored. It was Ipswich, wasn't it? I yeah. think a cup tie. And then he was up and running. And yeah, he had the celebration. And, and I think from Christmas onwards, you know, we, we knew we were up against it and probably were going to go down. But he gave, his goals gave us a fighting chance. But as much as anything else, just gave us something to smile about. You know, gave us something to enjoy. Man, I love Fiorto so much as a kid. Your final place on the bench, number 18, 
goes to an absolute legend. 312 appearances for Swindon and just the 111 goals. He saw it all. It started with a debut against Notts County in 1986 and it ended with a substitute appearance against Atalanta in the Anglo-Italian Cup in 1994. It's Steve Chalky-White. Yeah, I think one of your previous contributors described him as the greatest free signing ever and yeah you, you wouldn't argue with that would you I remember we signed him and Jimmy Gilligan I think in 1986 and I think Jimmy Gilligan was kind of the marquee signing and he didn't do anything and Steve White was the afterthought and yeah he was just great I mean from 86 probably through to through to 90 maybe 91 he was fantastic along with Duncan Shearer he was kind of you know leading the line scoring the goals and he was a key key player maybe in from sort of 92 onwards he was a bit more of a squad player yeah. But he was a talisman, you know. At Wembley, obviously, he came on and he won the penalty. But he, you know, he, played, he even played in the Premier League, which was just fantastic. It was great that he was there for the completion of that journey. Um, and I, I can't remember in that season. I remember him coming on in one game, and people just sort of singing Stevie White, Stevie White. When he gets the ball, he starts to fight Stevie, Stevie White, because he, by that stage, he was kind of this throwback that would come on, and you know, invariably we'd be losing, and he'd he'd upset some fancy down Premier League centre half with his elbows under their chin you know and yeah I'm pretty sure in the Premier League season they sold t-shirts saying Stevie White does it with his shorts up because he was so famous for having his shorts pulled up so high as well <laughs> and of course he won the penalty in 1993 which could you even imagine the drama if that final was in 2019 it was never a penalty and I imagine it will be never given today it wasn't a penalty was it well, they've got VAR, haven't they? Sorry, they haven't got VAR. No, that's it. There's a big controversy about not having it this year. I think, yeah, you're, you're right. We're probably lucky they didn't have it in 1993. But um, What I love when the penalty is given, Martin Lane goes to kiss Steve White and he's the gap in his tooth. And then Steve Agnew, the Leicester player, goes over, has a whisper in his ear, pushes him. Lovely. That Leicester team, we'd, we'd had some good battles of them earlier in the season. Colin Coldwood and Julian Joachim going at it, hammer and tongs at the camp. And, and I, I'm sure Steve White would have done it, would, would, have, would have gone to ground if it had been his mum tackling him. But I do think there's an element of what goes around comes around, you know, as well. I mean, obviously we wanted to win anyway, but I think, you know, you didn't feel guilty doing it to that team, to be honest. I mean, like Steve Walsh, Steve Agnew, there were, there were plenty of players in that team that could look after themselves in that Leicester team and probably would have done it themselves. So, yeah. absolutely love this series of my 11 so much variety but there can be no arguments when we talk about your goalkeeper number one 1986 to 1998 just the 505 appearances so many medals so many memories and a wash bag number one Fraser Digby yeah, Fraser Digby. Um, you, you couldn't argue that he's a, a maverick in any way, I don't think, really. I mean, he, I think he runs a pub now, doesn't he? Which is 
probably the least maverick thing ex-footballers ever do. <laughs> and a cult figure, yeah, I mean, he's a cult figure, isn't he? But like you said, he's a legend. Yeah, I could not put him in my team. He, he was like, you know, you had, you had Kenny Allen, who felt like he'd been transported in from the early 1960s or something. And then all of a sudden you had Fraser Digby, who was, you know, young, only probably 10 years older than me when they signed him. And he, he was cool. Do you know what I mean? He came from Man United. He had, he had a, he had a smart haircut. You know, he didn't even have, didn't even have a mullet, Rich. He was a, he got rid of his mullet by that time, you know? <laughs> I think even though obviously the, they all had the same kit, he seemed to have like a shiny modern goalie shirt, whereas, um, Kenny Allen had like an old, horrible, heavy woolen one. And, and he was just cool, and, and he was—he was my childhood. You know, they signed him when I was probably eleven, ten or eleven. And and he was, when he left, I was probably about twenty-two. You know, he was like mm. he was there. He was always there, Fraser Digby. You know, and you know, you have to remember, Man United weren't fantastic. If he'd abided his time, you, you never know. He might—he might have ended up. I, I don't see why not. And one other little thing: um, my mum and dad named their dog after him as well because we got um, my, me and my dad went and picked up a, a golden retriever puppy on Boxing Day in 1993. Dropped him off at home for my mum and then went and watched Swindon lose five 0 to Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, and we got home and my, we still haven't named him. And my dad just said, "Well, let's call him Digby. He's, he's always retrieving things." And, <laughs> yeah, it's a very lame joke, but yeah, and that was it. So we had a dog called Digby. So that, that you know he. He kind of had that legacy as well. Number two was a childhood favourite of mine, 1989 to 1994, and then a lovely little cameo in 2005. 135 appearances, 10 goals, buzzer junior, Nicky Summerby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, what, what, yeah, Summerby, Summerby rolling down the wing. Yeah, I just love Nicky Summerby. I mean, David Kerslake I kind of grew up with as well. Yeah. And he, he was fantastic in his first spell at Swindon. Great energy, getting down the wing and overlapping. Great, great crosses, great delivery. But some of he had something a, a bit, a little bit more about him, you know, in terms of appeal to me when I was sort of 15, 16. You know, he was very cool. He, he looked like he didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure he did sometimes, and <laughs> that was kind of cool as well. I, I once saw him walking through the centre of town. Wearing wearing tracksuit bottoms and blue suede shoes, which on anybody else, you know, I would have laughed at him. But it was Nicky Summerby, and you just thought, if that's what Nicky Summerby wears, then then that's fine, isn't it? I used this like, yeah, the pro, the pro, promotion season and the Premier League season. In my mind's eye, we we're always attacking the Stratton Bank because I was on the Shrivenham Road, and it always felt like Summerby was in front of me, and Paul Bowden was on the far side. And he just, yeah, you kind of that terrace, you were sort of on top of the pitch, and he was right underneath you. And he wasn't the quickest, but he kind of shuffled and sort of had that one trick, a bit like Paul Allen did it in a couple of years later, where he, it just worked every time. You know, he just used to shove the ball outside the fullback and he'd go round and He would go round them with a plum. Nicky Summerby. Number three then, no surprises. His first spell was between 1988 and 1991, and then he returned in 92 uh, before leaving for Reading in 1996. A Welsh international who scored 40 times, including the winner at Wembley in 1993. 297 appearances in total. It's Zippy, Paul Bowden. Yeah, Paul, but Paul Bowden wasn't cool, was he, by, no. any, by any measure, really. Um, he had a wispy moustache, and, and yeah, it looked like he probably, you know, would would drive you home for five pounds just a, a nice man you know the opposite of some of me maybe in, in some ways he came across his character but i guess I, my choice was between him and phil king to be to be left wing back and phil king was great great in his day but i remember Bowden more and obviously the penalty and just i mean i think he scored 12 or 15 goals that season and you know only, only five or six were penalties he used to score a lot of goals overlapping and and you know firing them in and a bit like you, you kind of defend the honor of nicky summerby or certainly defend his history I always felt we had to defend the honour of Bowden because a lot of people only remember him for that miss for Wales. Great, great player. 
over two spells as well. He went away, went to Palace, didn't he, in um, Newcastle for a bit, came back and was even better under Hoddle than he had been under Ardiles. Number four, sweeper, player manager, but not manager of this team, 1991 to 1993, three goals in 75 appearances, including another goal scorer from Wembley 93, it's Glenn Hoddle. Yeah, Glenn Hoddle was my favourite footballer long before he signed for Swindon. <laughs> you must have absolutely lost your mind when Glenn Hoddle was appointed. Uh, I did. You know, I, was, I actually went and got his autograph the day he got appointed. Um, and I wasn't that young. So, you know, I was thinking I might be a bit too old for this. Uh, so, yeah, I'd have been 15 at least. Uh, and I got the bus into town and bought uh, bought an autograph book from the club shop because, you know, I didn't have one. I was too cool for autographs. I waited outside until he came out and I got, and I got his autograph. And it, it was crap. It doesn't say Tagab or anything like that. I should have got him to write something creative, but it, it's Glenn Hoddle's autograph. But, yeah, I liked him from sort of probably the 86 World Cup, which was like my first sort of big football tournament. And he was just my favourite footballer. He just, I like the way that you're probably getting a sense of what I see. I like it a footballer now, Richard. It's not always their footballing ability. But he just looked apart, had his shirt untucked and socks down, cool mullet. And he didn't run around much, you know, because he didn't need to. He just waited for the ball to come to him and he'd be in the pocket of space and then he'd spray it around. And, you know, obviously, famously, he's seen as a player who was undervalued by England in that era because Too that good. wasn't the way you were meant to play football, you know? You know, we're a nation, aren't we, that, that's never happier than when a centre-forward sprints out to the wing to try and block a clearance and, you know, puts it out for a throw-in, you know? Glenn Hoddle would never do that because he'd be saving his energy for when it was needed. And, yeah, that's obviously not what I recognised when I was 10, but... <laughs> I loved him back then, and yeah, like you said, lost my mind when he signed for Swindon. And he was, he was so good that, in a way, when we didn't have the ball, he was almost a passenger, but he was so good that it was worth having a passenger, if that makes sense. He, he didn't play sweeper in the, in the sense of, you know, mopping up and kind of, you know, cutting off runs or, or sort of balls through, because he, he wasn't really very good defensively, but he played sweeper in the sense that he stood next to Taylor and Calderwood and just took the pass from them when they won possession, and then obviously did, did what only he could do. Number five, joined Swindon Town in 1985 from Mansfield and then captained the club all the way through the leagues from the fourth tier to the third tier to the second tier and then to the Premier League before leaving for Tottenham Hotspur in 1993. And a handsome chap as well. It's Colin Coldwood. The fridge. Yeah, Colin <laughs> Coldwood. Another childhood era. Just, yeah, I remember, I remember, like, he was, again, he signed at the start, but certainly he was the captain in 85, 86, despite being a lot younger than these grizzled guys like Kenny Allen and I can't even think who else, Lee Barnard, Chris Ramsey. But, yeah, he, he was just so cool, so collected, and he was just a brilliant, brilliant defender. And it's just lovely that he was there, not quite all the through the journey. He obviously frustratingly left before we played in the Premier League, but the fact that he played in the fourth division, the third division, the second division, and was brilliant in all three divisions. You know, it wasn't like by the time he got to the second division, he couldn't quite play at that level. He was still the best player on the park, you know, and just the sort of reference point for, for all those around him. From my memory, when Glenn Hoddle left for Chelsea, there was a lot of ill feeling, but I don't remember that really, and I was very young at the time, but I don't remember that when Colin left for Spurs. I don't think anyone could begrudge him that move because he did so much for Swindon Town and of course he went on as a result of this to play for Scotland and go to a World Cup yeah absolutely and, and um, a bit like uh, talking about Nathan Thompson earlier in, in a similar way I don't think anybody 
held it against him. You know, I think it was very disappointing. But you know, what you could not begrudge the man anything he chose to do, apart from possibly retiring or joining Oxford. You know, it was it was it was fair enough. And he he was he was a really good defender and he was very cool. But he had a had a real sort of steel to him as well. You know, I mean, I talked earlier about Julian Jochim and that famous clip of him holding Jochim by the throat while he was you know chucking punches at him, but. He used to have some real ding-dong battles with Steve Bull as well when Steve Bull was fantastic for Wolves and playing for England. You know, that's how good he was. That Coldwood used to used to have these battles with him and had a, suffered a really, really bad knee injury on a, a midweek game against Wolves. I was at that game. And, and I don't think it was Steve Bull's fault, but it was certainly when the two of them were going for the ball. And yeah, that sort of summed him up. That he just was hard as nails, you know. But very rarely flustered. Number six was one of the victors at Wembley in 1990 under Ozzy Ardiles, that 1-0 win over Sunderland. He played 165 appearances for Swindon, scoring seven goals. He scored more goals than he was sent off, believe it or not. It's John Gittins. Ah, uh, yeah. I love John Gittins. He, he definitely comes into the, the sort of cult and maverick. Well, I don't know about maverick, but definitely cult category. This, this, this probably sounds like I'm belittling, belittling him slightly, but one of the things that I used to love about him, me and my dad both used to laugh because he, he was quite famous for having this very, very loud and very high pitched voice when, and kind of the only thing he'd shout was time, you know? So like the, whoever was attacking, you just hear John Gittins shout, time, time, time. Time. Sorry, not when they're taking. When we had the ball, you know, whoever was kind of bringing it out from defence, and and it just always used to make us laugh. Time, time, time. All right, John. Fine. And and it's one of those weird things where I find myself doing that on the rare occasions that I play five-a-side football now. Whoever's got the ball, I'll just suddenly realise I'm shouting time at them in a high-pitched voice. And yeah, that's the legacy of three or four years watching John Gittins. I think he's one of those guys as well because we replaced him pretty seamlessly with Sean yeah. Taylor. We, we effectively upgraded, I, I'd say, probably. But, um, you know, a bit like Steve Foley, maybe he's forgotten a bit. But he, he was there for a good few years, and he, and he was... I'm poking fun at his voice, but he was a really, really good defender. Quite quick, really strong in the tackle. Had yeah, had a bit of a, an edge about him and a bit of a disciplinary record. He also got sent he off in that game that yeah. Nesta Lorenzo got sent yeah. off in. Yeah, we lost, we lost 2-1, I think. I remember Robert Fleck scoring the winner. I think both, both sendings off involved Robert Fleck. And when he scored the winner, he ran up in front of the Swindon fans and stuck two fingers up uh, which, which kind of made him John McGinley five years yeah. before John McGinley really but, uh, but you know I don't mind that now that's the sort of thing that makes football good isn't it you know you don't, don't always see things like that anymore but yeah and getting so yeah he, he had a bit, bit, bit of a record of being sent off but you know the he was lively he was good number seven played for Swindon between 1992 and 1994 scoring six times in 67 appearances for town he was voted the player of the season during our one campaign in the Premier League it's John Monker yeah I nearly put on my team team list here I wasn't sure how you'd go with this Probably badly, because technically it would have meant having 13 players. But I nearly wrote John Monker slash Mickey Hazard slash Martin Ling, because they sort of all represented this, the same thing to me, really, that kind of that era and that style of play. Mm. And I know, obviously, they did play together quite a lot, but similar sort of ball-playing midfielders. Um, I really, I, really, I love Mickey Hazard. He seemed to do a, a sort of 360 pirouette every time he got the ball and just like, assessed the entire pitch before deciding what to do. Martin Ling, again, was a, a you know lovely, lovely footballer. Um, and so was Moncur. And like you said, there, he was probably the pick of him in that Premier League season. He was another great signing by Hoddle. 
I think he paid 80000 for him. I absolutely loved John Monko when I was a kid. He had that blonde hair, he had that pop collar, and could you even imagine how great it was in my mind when Eric Cantona came to the county ground, had a pop collar off with John Monker, and John Monker won. Get off the pitch, Eric. Probably why he did it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Cantona wasn't happy about the collar thing, and John was probably just telling him he did it first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember that game vividly, and remember the sending off, and at the time, kind of feeling, you know, how dare you stand on John Monker? And then, kind of, you know, as you get older, and certainly when you went on to see his disciplinary record at West Ham, you realised that yeah, he probably he probably did something to him. Yeah, he was a good footballer, but yeah, he had that bit of edge about him, didn't he? Which showed later in his career when he he kind of got, seemed to be known as a bit of a hard man at yeah. West Ham, didn't he? But he he wasn't he wasn't really perceived like that at the time I don't think number 8 signed for Swindon in 1986 and his town career was something of a slow burner and it wasn't until the Aussie Ardiles era did he really begin to thrive he scored the winning goal in the playoff final in 1990 against Sunderland and he would go to the World Cup with Republic of Ireland as a Swindon town player the first man to do such a thing number 8 is Alan McLaughlin yeah, it's it's surprising when when you recall that like you said that he signed in 1986 because mm. it doesn't it doesn't feel like he was he was there at that time. I think it's it's one of the sad things I think of modern football is you players don't tend to get that time to develop at clubs. I mean, you wouldn't sign a player now at sort of 21, 22 if they didn't do it in the first two years, they wouldn't be there mm. in the third year, would they? Mm. I don't know if the contracts were longer then or it was before the Bosman ruling. Of course, that's it. Yeah, mm. of course it is. But just kind of, you know, to develop a player like that, and and, and you know, he played under under two managers. Yeah, so obviously Macari bought him, and then Ardiles, he he really excelled. But yeah, just to kind of have that player in, a, in what would have been quite a small squad as well, you know, and he kind of learned his trade, played a bit, came through. And then in that Ardiles team, played behind the front two, like I said earlier, with McLaren, Foley and Tom Jones. And he was a great goal scorer, scored the winner at Wembley against yeah. Sunderland. <laughs> You're going to hate me. It was an own goal, wasn't it? Rich, what kind of swing this for you? Paul Bowden didn't earn a penalty. Alan McLaughlin didn't score at Wembley. Fair point. I imagine this shot was going in anyway. For Christmas that year, I got I got like I've got a signed picture of the goal, like they, you know, not, not it's not like the only one in existence. It was from the club shop, but you know, it's like a framed picture of the goal with all the players signed it around it. It's just like an, a moment frozen in history. You can see, I think it must be Kerslake bombing on down the right, Tom Jones tucking in, Shearer and Steve White already kind of peeling towards the back post because they're thinking the ball's going to go wide and then the cross is going to come in. No, Alan McLaughlin knows what he's going to do. He's 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 worked it all out and he's going to twat it into Gary Bennett and it's going to loop into the net. You've won me over. It was never an own goal. <laughs> Number nine played for Swindon between 1988 and 1992, scoring 98 times in 199 appearances. I just want that to be rounded up so much, but uh, that exit was sabotage. Number nine is Duncan Shearer. Yeah, well, we've got Blackburn Rovers to blame for it being 199 games, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. He signed from Huddersfield, I I think, Mm -hmm. for a fair bit of money. It wasn't like a Steve White kind of free transfer. But he wasn't, when he first joined Swindon, he was rubbish. That that was one of the great things about him. He signed, and I remember, me and my dad, we had season tickets in the North Stand then. And my dad used to laugh at him and say, he's he's shit, you know, he, he was slow. Not just lack of pace, but, you know, he didn't really get around the pitch a great deal. He was, you know, he's a target man, but the ball was sort of bouncing off him. It just didn't happen for him. For I, I should have done my research, Rich, but I'd say probably three or four months. It, it didn't really happen for him. But when it when it started happening, 
he was just brilliant. He was Roy de Rovers, you know. He'd, he'd score tap-ins, he'd score towering headers from, from crosses and corners, but he'd also twat them in from 20 yards, you know. He, he was just brilliant. He, he was just a proper old-school centre-forward. Just bullied people, you know, a, a real rasping shot on him. He, he was big, red-faced, ginger Scotsman, you know. Which I just, yeah. And, and, and not only was he the first Shearer to, to go to Blackburn, he was also the first Shearer to have that charm. Well, you know, things in football that annoy you, it's when, you know, for years and years, Shearer, Shearer, that's what Swindon fans used to sing to Duncan Shearer in 1989, you know. One little thing about him as well, my my, my now brother-in-law is, uh, is, is Scottish and he's a massive Aberdeen fan. Oh. And he's, Duncan Shearer's probably more popular with Aberdeen than he was at Swindon. They yeah. absolutely loved him for his goal scoring, but also for something you referred to earlier as shithousery. <laughs> he, he basically is a club legend for, for scoring against Rangers and winding up Rangers fans on a, a very, very regular basis. Apparently, I, I never knew this, you know, as a kid watching him play, but he was a bit of a character, Duncan. Apparently, he's, um, he, he likes a drink, which, you know, possibly, again, is a bit of a cliche. He's a great man of the Highlands. I think his brother, Cammy, play, played for Ross County or something. He might have been assistant manager at Aberdeen. And again, this is, this is kind of allegations from my brother-in-law, but suggestions that his professionalism in terms of ab- abstention from the bottle and, you know, pre- preaching, practicing what he preached may not have been his strongest suit. Is that fair? You might need to redact this part of the podcast. <laughs> What's that disclaimer in that episode of The Simpsons? This situation may never happened. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, do you think his move to Blackburn truly derailed Swindon's season? Because at the end, we did finish pretty comfortably mid-table. Were we stitched up? We had momentum. I remember it was a re- it was a really topsy-turvy season, and I think when when they bought him, we were eighth, probably. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I, that's a rubbish answer, isn't it? I, I don't know. We, we definitely could. Have. I remember. I remember feeling, yeah, you, you know, we've been robbed here, and it, it's one of one of the contrib- contributing reasons, one of the very good reasons they eventually ditched that March transfer deadline to stop clubs, maybe not doing it quite as cynically as that, but yeah, from from you know strengthening at the expense of rivals with very little time left in the season. Yeah, and I've, I remember feeling sorry for him as well because, like you said, it was clear that they didn't want him and. They sold him two months later to Aberdeen, which luckily, as I say, were, turned out to have been a great move for him. But I remember thinking at the time that, you know, what's he gone there for? You know, and, you know, a year later, we're playing in the Premier League and he's he's playing for Aberdeen, which, you know, they were a good side at the time. But you did feel sorry for him in a way, yeah. Number 10 played for Swindon in the 21st century. Signing in 2009, 10 years ago, unbelievable, and scoring 37 times in only 65 appearances before getting his big move to Burnley in 2011. It's Charlie Austin. Yeah, there's, there's kind of light and shade with Charlie, isn't there? Like mm. The way he left annoyed a lot of people and, you know, he's maybe to this day still not everybody's favourite and he, he had his rough edges, but... Yeah, I wanted to have somebody in from the fairly recent era, mm. uh, and he was a great, great player. And I, I just loved his story. You know, I was I was in my thirties, probably just about when he signed, and you know, probably not as in love with with football as a whole. Maybe with Swindon, but not football as a whole as I as I was as a kid. And stories like that didn't really happen anymore. You know, I mean, you well documented story of him being at Pool Town and at Bournemouth but they couldn't sign him and then we brought him in I think I think the, the, the sort of hod carrier thing was overplayed a little bit because I think his, his dad ran the business do you know what I mean yeah. I, don't, I don't think he, Charlie was kind of on his uppers or anything but yeah just that, that way of sort of coming into the game I, 
I was at Norwich for his league debut and people were singing his name before he'd even come on, you know, just because of that buzz of we've got this local lad, you know, he, fans could relate to him and he, he could have been rubbish and we'd have all forgotten about it. And I remember thinking at the time, to be honest, when people were singing the song, it's like, oh, we haven't even seen him yet. You know, but but he, he surpassed all our expectations. Charlie was just so good from the off and it was amazing to see and he was genuinely exciting and I remember being up north and working and checking the scores on my phone and it almost became weird when you didn't see Austin's name on the score sheet at any point but sadly his legacy really is that awful moment on that terrible pitch at Wembley. That that chance was, was just horrible. I just... um. People used to ask me, not Swindon fans, people I work with now who you know didn't didn't get to see much of him when he was coming through. They'd sort of say, "What's he good at?" You know, this this Austin, he's scoring all your goals. What, what's he good at? And I, maybe I'm just a terrible judge of a player, but I think I definitely am. But I say, well, I don't know really. You know, so well, he's, he's not that big because he wasn't big like he is now. You know, you see Charlie Austin on the telly now, and he's he's a unit, isn't he? Yeah. But he was all all kind of skin and bone when he when he first played, and he kind of had that hunched back, didn't he? Yeah. And, and I said, if we, you know, he's not really a target man. They said, oh, so he's quick, is he? He gets in behind defences. I said, no, not really. Just puts it in. <laughs> I said, he, score, he just scores goals. He just scores goals. <laughs> and it was... He just scores goals. He yeah, just flicks, you know, headers, shots from outside the box, to, you know, quick turns. So he just scores. I didn't like Charlie's exit. I felt it was for more reasons other than football. And although he handed in his transfer request, I genuinely believe if Danny put his arm around his shoulder with the boards backing and said, you will get your move in the summer if you just stick around, keep Swindon up, then he would have done so and scored those goals. But alas, it wasn't to be. I think that's a good point. A lot a lot of it, sort of, a lot of the disappointment and criticism was, was aimed Charlie's way. But you're right. I, I think it could have been handled better by the club as well. I, yeah, I, I, I kind of... I haven't got a lot of time for people who, who continue to bear a grudge against him because I, I think he did a lot of great things for us. And I think pretty much everywhere he's played since, he's a, he's a, he was a big favourite. I've got a very good friend who's a QPR fan and they absolutely loved him. He's just wholehearted, wouldn't he? Another, another little edge to it. Um, I lived in Hungerford a bit when I was a kid and my dad's from Hungerford and his family. So that's where Charlie was from as well. It was mm. kind of like, you know, the Swindon thing and the Hungerford town thing as well. And, I think he played for Kintbury, like all the sort of West West Berkshire towns around there, and yeah, a bit like you said, forty thousand people at Plymouth to see Duncan Shearer. I think I think I know about forty thousand people who claim to have, you know, had a pint or <laughs> you know been in the back of a car listening to a mixtape with Charlie Austin when they were fifteen. <laughs> you know, which I'm pretty sure is not true, but he was one of the boys to a mm. lot of people, wasn't he? He was just a, a, a local lad. He could have been them. You know, football was kind of sometimes. I kind of arrive on spaceships hermetically sealed at 16 to be developed into the blue chip <laughs> players and he, he he was never that was he my favourite Charlie Austin moment from his Swindon career was at the uh, Valley during the second leg of the playoff semi-final against Chelton and he steps up to take one of the penalties in the shootout and as he's walking to take his penalty he looks absolutely exhausted and frankly petrified and you're kind of watching it going oh my god he's gonna miss and then he coolly converts his effort and he jogs off laughing as if he's conned us all and frankly he did that's right i remember as well i think i don't know if it was his best game but certainly the 
the best game I remember seeing him was Leeds away when him and Billy Painter just absolutely had their way with yeah. with a really good team, you know, and just it wasn't a contest. And, and yeah, just, yeah, great. I'm really pleased that somebody, I know it's nearly 10 years ago, but somebody fairly recent, I, I can quite easily say, yeah, I want, him, I want him in my 11, yeah. I'm glad that there's still players like that that excite me, you know. The final man on the team sheet, number 11, played for Swindon, between 1984 and 1990, scoring 41 goals in 137 appearances for Swindon, it's Peter Coyne. Peter Coyne, yeah. He, uh, with Glenn Hoddle, was my, like I said, uh, Glenn Hoddle was my childhood hero. It was Glenn Hoddle and Peter Coyne, basically, because mm. Glenn Hoddle was the one on TV that you never got to see, and obviously until events brought him to Swindon, but Peter Coyne was my local hero. He was the one I used to go and watch. And, and again, as ever with me, it wasn't always what he did. It was the way he looked while he did it. He was kind of had this cool, straight, wispy mullet and his shirt untucked again, Rich. I don't like people with shirts tucked in, apart from Steve White and Sean Taylor. <laughs> um, and, he, and he wore number seven. I, I nearly corrected you on the email earlier when you got him in as number 11 because Peter Coyne was always number seven. I know that because I've got, I've got a little spell. LLG shirt from about 1987 with a number seven sewn on the back by my mum because I just wanted to be Peter Coyne. I just, I loved him. I, I do I do remember he famously like scored a hat-trick for England schoolboys at Wembley or something. That was the, the stat that always got wheeled out when, when he was at Swindon. <laughs> um, and Makari, yeah, obviously knew him from United, brought him down. And he played, I mean, I say he was number seven. I'm not sure if he played on the wing or just kind of attacking midfield. I can't really remember. But um, he's, he, scored, he scored the winner in that cup tie against Sheffield Wednesday, which like, like I say, is very definitely one of the like formative games of my childhood under the lights. And it was from a corner, I think, and he scored the header. That kind of made him the hero because that, that really was, I can't exaggerate, how how big a sort of thing that was, that cup tie at the time. Because mm-hmm. although Swindon went on to win the fourth division that season, in the September, October, they weren't at the top of the league. And they'd been on a really, you know, down downward spiral for a couple of years. So it was a real sort of feel-good thing. Yeah. Um, and he sort of led that. Yeah, he, he um, went on to score over 10 goals that season. Scored a good few goals the next season when we got promoted as well. It surprised me that he was there. You said he was there till 1990 because oh, yeah, yeah, he, he didn't play a great deal. But yeah, he, he was um, just a, a good good attacking midfielder who yeah I grew up loving. And there's also, on obviously, is it Rich Banyard's website? Yeah. With all the clips. There's a lovely clip on there from, it must be HTV News, the following day after the 1-0 win over Sheffield Wednesday and they interviewed Peter Coyne. And there's a clip of him stood on the on the pitch with his son, kind of re- re- recalling the night before, and he's just got got on this fantastic tracksuit, the likes of of which weren't seen in Swindon in 1985. Trust me, you know he just looked so cool, and his son looked cool because his dad was a footballer and could buy him nice tracksuits as well, you know. Pick somebody out, far post for Shearer, goal! Yes, wonderful goal all the way from the moment that Hazard picked him out. Okay then, so we need a formation. What are we going with? I think we're going three-five-two. Yeah, Hoddle as sweeper, Gittins and Coldwood, Bowden and Summerby, providing questionable defensive cover, but bombing forward. I'm, I'm not entirely sure who's doing the legwork in midfield, but you know, as a team of Mavericks, I think they can work it out amongst themselves. You know. So the final appointment needs to be made. The man who is required to manage these ragtag group of renegades and you have opted for the man who started it all between 1984 
1989. He played for Swindon 43 times, scoring four goals, but we've got him in for his managerial ability. 285 games as manager of Swindon, 138 of those were victories. There could be no better man for the job, surely, than Lou Macari. Well, Rich, arguably Ozzy Ardeal is better or, or Glenn Hoddle better. I think, you know, different fans will, will pick their, their different favourite. And for different reasons, I, I could go with Ardeal or Hoddle as well, to be honest. But I went with Lou Macari because, for me, without Lou Macari, none of it happens. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he started the journey. Well, I mean, you, you call my team rag, ragtag ren, renegades, but that's probably a very good way to describe that 85-86 team. And the players he brought in and, you know, like you said, where they, the different places they came from, Kenny Allen from Torquay, Peter Coyne from non-league, Charlie Henry already there, but not really doing anything before that. And he, he, he just mailed it a team from nothing, you know, and seemingly from a, a season before when nothing much was happening, he even got the sack, came back, you know, some, something magical happened. And I know it all ended a bit sour with him going to West Ham and then obviously the off-field problems that led to the demotion in 1990, but... Uh, you know, at the time, and even more so now, I'd, anything that he may have done wrong, I'd forgive him for because, you know, the good the, the, the good wouldn't have happened without the good stuff he did. You know. Yeah, Gavin, I have absolutely loved doing this episode with you, and I'm loving doing this my eleven series altogether. How's it been for you? Yeah, good. Good trip down memory lane. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, my memory is pretty terrible, but uh, <laughs> it's more for feel and. You know, rather than specific events. But yeah, it well, was fun. It's been absolutely amazing having you on, Gavin. Thank you so much. Rich, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. The Low Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. It seems for pretty lame human now, but I remember going to to Anfield and the sixty nine had printed printed out all the um calm down, calm down shoots of A four, and every time the cops sang, we held those up. And I think it was on the back page of the maybe the Sun on the Monday, saying like best best fans in the league. Yeah, you, you know, as you get older, you I think I realised at the time, but you realise you know you've got to live for moments like that. That's, they're the sort of greatest of times, aren't they? You know? Yeah, and. Yeah. Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, 
or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 